The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. We have a new Prime Minister, but who elected her? Not me. Not me either. In fact, unless you're one of the around 200,000 members of the Conservative Party or one of the around 75,000 electors in her southwest Norfolk constituency, you'll never have had the chance to vote for her at all. And she's the third Prime Minister in five years to get into number 10 with no say from the electorate. Is that how it should be in a democracy? Okay, we're not a presidential system, but isn't there something flawed in a country when the people have so little effective say in who governs them? And with the outgoing PM about to send a lot of his friends and party funders to the overcrowded House of Lords, is this really how government is supposed to work? Do we need something more than a few ancient understandings or accepted principles? Do we, in fact, need a constitution? In sum, isn't it time we took back control of our democracy? That's today on The Y Curve. The Y Curve. Now is the time to tackle the issues that are holding Britain back. Energy costs. We need to build roads, homes and broadband faster. And energy prices. We need more investment and great jobs in every town and city across our country. And fix the energy crisis. We need to reduce the burden on families and help people get on in life. By lowering costs of energy. I know that we have what it takes to tackle those challenges. Does she even know there's an energy crisis? Of course, it won't be easy. But we can do it. By lowering energy. We will transform Britain into an aspiration nation with high-paying jobs, low energy, safe streets, costs, and where everyone everywhere has the opportunities <sighs> they deserve. So that's Liz Truss uh, standing outside uh, number 10 uh, just before and after the pouring rain. Uh, yes. So God is on her side because it stopped raining just long enough to yeah, give her a very short right, speech. Yeah, right. uh, but what I thought inter- was interesting there was, I mean, her opening gambit is all about cutting tax and going for growth. Now, she did mention the NHS as well. Uh, she oh, she right, didn't put okay. that in there, but she which didn't talk slightly about, surprised about. Right, didn't but she didn't the, the lead-in that everybody is concerned about yeah. is the fact how are we going to pay our energy bills yeah, yeah. and are we going to run out of gas? Uh, and well, yet- we're going to get more on that. We're going to find that out in the next no. uh, next few days, what she's going to do. But the point is not what she said, but who she is mm. and why she's there. Uh, yeah. And the fact is that none of us have had a say in it. Uh, exactly. And is she and is she up to it as well? Which, I mean, I guess we'll find out. We always have that question about a PM. But it has been a very presidential campaign. She is there saying, look at me. I'm Liz Truss. I am your new prime minister. Mm. Uh, not about, you know, I'm the next caretaker for the, uh, for, for the Conservative yeah, government. Yeah, she talking to? She's talking to around around well, 200,000, slightly less, conservative members, people who pay their dues, people who go along and play table tennis, people who hand out leaflets, people who do that kind of stuff. Fine. I mean, nothing wrong with that at all. Mm. But why them? Yeah. And in that time it took, because, you, you know, we're at, at a crucial time for this country that we had basically two months while we were uh, had a rudderless government, uh, a prime minister who spent a lot of time on holiday and we didn't hear from him at all, which is curious. Because and now he's he about to um, nominate a vast number of people to go to the House of Lords. Yeah, it all seems wrong. Gift. Yeah, exactly. It all seems wrong, doesn't it? Wouldn't it have been a lot quicker if we're going to, well, maybe not quicker, but a lot cleaner. If we were going to spend that two months doing this, we could have had a general election. And maybe, you know, I wonder whether we just say, look, if you if, you, if you're going to change prime minister, we're going to change. But that makes it a presidential system. That's the problem. We have mm. a system that essentially developed yeah, early in the 18th century. You elect someone, a good person, a man in those days, of course, from your constituency to go and represent you in Parliament. I mean, that is the basis we work on, but it's not the basis that people understand it. Yeah. All right. Well, l- l- let's look a-, a little bit more at this then. That's that's the focus today. Is democracy broken? Do we need to change the system? And we'll be joined now by Robert Hazel, Professor of Government and Constitution at UCL. Robert, thanks so much for being with us. I mean, I I suppose the first question really is, 
Is there something inherently wrong in the structure of our democracy that makes something like this happen, where, where Liz Truss is elected by a very small coterie, and indeed it's been a pattern of recent years that this seems to happen. Now, we're not a presidential system, we get that, but it still seems there's something wrong. Because we have, it has almost become a presidential vote, hasn't it? Because she has been going around with her own, if you like, presidential promises, which are you know not what we voted for at the last general election. There's nothing inherently wrong in what is still a parliamentary system of government. And all other countries in Europe and around the world with parliamentary systems of government would have exactly the same rule that if during the middle of a parliamentary term, the prime minister, the incumbent prime minister resigns for whatever reason, there will then take place a leadership election within the governing party and so long as the governing party still commands the confidence of parliament, that new leader will then become the prime minister. Well, that, that's the system as it is, as you say, and, and it does exist in other places. But is, is it time, do you think, that to have something more of a hybrid, perhaps reflecting the fact that people do see it almost in a presidential way? People think at general elections very often that they're voting for the prime minister and are surprised to see some other name on the ballot paper. Should we adjust our system to reflect reality? I'd rather go the other way um, and, uh, in fact, limit uh, the number of people who can choose uh, the leaders of our major parliamentary parties. Because it's a relatively recent development, just of the last 20 to 30 years, that the leader of a party is elected by all the members of the party around the country, instead of, as used to happen, simply being elected by the parliamentary party, namely a new Conservative leader would be selected by the Conservative Party MPs, and a new Labour would be Labour leader would be elected by the Parliamentary Labour Party, um, and uh, I think uh, I wish we could turn the clock back, because I think MPs knew much better the strengths and weaknesses of uh, individual candidates standing for election. Uh, whereas I think it's easier uh, for members of uh, the political parties at large. Um, to, in particular, um, be tempted to elect rather more populist leaders. Uh, and I think we've seen that in both parties, with the election in the Labour Party of Jeremy Corbyn, um, and with the election more recently uh, in the Conservative Party of Boris Johnson. Well, that is a democratic system you're talking about there, isn't it? Because we elected those MPs. We, did, we You know, the, the, the membership of the Conservative Party just paid their dues, and they get to choose the, a prime minister that the population as a whole can't, uh, can't choose. But we chose our MPs, so we should be happy that our MPs are choosing who the, who the leader of no, the no, party but, is. No, no, but the point is, when this was changed, uh, as I'm sure you know, Pro Professor Hazel, it was when there was a sense that the people who formed the parties, there was an issue about party membership, who, who joined political parties anymore it was almost an incentive to join parties was to have that say and that surely is healthy but not representative you're quite right uh and the way it's put uh and when i've discussed this with members of political parties it's the argument they make to me uh they say look why do i go out on wet winter evenings leafleting streets and canvassing at election time when i no longer have any influence over party policy because it's true that in both parties, the membership no longer uh, have any such influence. And so the one thing they can get in exchange is uh, every so often 
they get to have a say in the choice of the new leader. Um, and I think it's uh, very unlikely, in fact, probably impossible to put the genie back into the bottle. I think having granted voting rights to members at large of the political parties, they're not going to give that up. But is that a fair system for everybody else, for the people who aren't in, in the Tory party, who aren't Tory party members, uh, that we have a, a change of leader that's, that is elected by a subsection of the, of the population? As I say, you can't argue against decisions being made by MPs that you've elected, but decisions being made by a subsection of the, the general population just doesn't seem democratic. Well, um, we don't have a presidential system, and I hope we never do have. Uh, one thing political science is pretty confident about, as a general rule, is that presidential systems are both more brittle and less stable than parliamentary systems of government, because you have competing sources of democratic authority between the directly elected president and the directly elected legislature. We have a parliamentary system where, in effect, when choosing our political leader, it's a two-stage process. First, at a general election, we elect a parliament, and parliament then decides who can command the confidence in the House of Commons, and that person becomes prime minister. Right, but that's, that, that is not what's happened here. Because if, if, if parliament had decided, uh, it would be Rishi Sunak who's prime minister now. It's not Rishi Sunak because uh, we went out to the broader uh, Conservative Party membership and, uh, and they chose uh, somebody else. They chose Liz Truss. I mean, that, and so that, that, I see that as a travesty of democracy. And also, there is the issue that, to reflect on the other side, I mean, many people said that when Jeremy Corbyn was elected, there was a move at the time to have this very cheap membership, mass membership, supporting rather than being even a member of the party. I think it was two or three pounds. And suddenly the Labour Party became the largest political organisation in Europe and produced Jeremy Corbyn, which... Uh, many people think consigned Labour to the backbenches of the, of the other side um, and to opposition for for a very long time. So almost stuffing the electorate if, in effect or, 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 or perhaps campaigning to get lots of people in to get a particular result, entryism, if you like, is a big problem in this. Well, it is a problem that the membership of both our major political parties has been in free fall uh, for several decades. In the 1950s, both major parties counted their members in the millions. So it was nothing unusual to be a member of the Labour Party or a member of the Conservative Party. Now, membership of both major parties has fallen to almost 10% of those post-war levels. We don't know exactly the membership of the Conservative Party, but the figure banded around during the recent leadership election was somewhere between 150,000 and 200,000 people. Uh, and so it's a real problem that the parties themselves recognize that their membership is tiny and it's probably deeply unrepresentative of the adult population at large. And that was the reason why uh, the Labour Party fairly recently, as you've just been saying, decided as an experiment to try to enlarge the selectorate uh, by offering affiliate membership from member uh, at a very modest price of three pounds. Uh, and they're not the only political party um, to have experimented in this way. I believe that Macron in France has similarly tried to extend uh, the selectorate 
in his party in that way. But in, in France, there are very loose political parties almost anyway. They, they seem to form and, and yes, reform I, and at the moment. Let's not go too far in drawing any parallels. I just say Labour are not unique mm. in being aware that their membership uh, is very small. Uh, and I think they should be lauded for experimenting anyway in trying to widen the base. Um, the result, we know, uh, was that they elected a leader who, in it, simple, purely electoral terms, proved to be deeply unpopular and contributed to the massive defeat in the 2019 general election. Can, can I raise another issue there? Yeah, please. Um, and, and this is a constitutional issue, um, which is the extent to which the state should seek to interfere with or regulate the internal processes of political parties. Because, again, until relatively recently, political parties in law had the same status as private members' clubs, uh, and they were left entirely to run their own affairs. Uh, and that changed dramatically in the year 2000 with the Political Parties Elections and Referendums Act, which for the first time sought to regulate uh, campaign finance. Um, and it would be possible uh, for the law to go further and to begin to regulate what we might call internal party democracy, to say to the political parties, um, we don't like the way in which you elect your leaders um, and we would like you to change your rules in the following ways. I think myself that would be a step too far uh, for the state to begin to uh, intrude. But why, why would it be a step too far, Professor? Because the point surely is if these are enormously powerful organisations effectively uh, presenting to the electorate what then goes on to be the government, they should be regulated and perhaps you could tie it into any kind of public funding for those parties. And Liz Truss, all the way through this, I mean, you, you say that it's not a presidential system, but it has been like a presidential campaign, hasn't it? But it has been a presidential campaign aimed, obviously, at the Tory party. And Liz Truss's language all the way through this has not been about what she's going to do for the for the country. It's all been about what we're going to do for the Tory party. And I'm going well, to lead like a conservative. She says it's about, about what she wants to do in the country, but it is aim the audience is it's the members. Very much, yeah exactly to to win over what, mm. what's going to push their button so it, it has been presidential from that point of view but if, if you if if we were to say well okay uh, the law is going to change and we are going to control how you uh, how you elect not just the leader of the party but in this case who's going to be the leader of the country as well which has to be considered obviously is a fairly big consideration in all of this what would you change would you would you take it back to that that, that, that situation where you say well let's just get MPs to decide and, and, and I'll stop in a second but I, I was I, I grew up in I spent a lot of my life living in Australia where there were a lot of changes of, uh, of, of prime ministers over the years actually you know, better at it than, than the UK is faster uh, see absolutely very fast I mean it's, it's it's almost the decision is almost made within the day well uh, in Australia indeed it is the party caucus yes it's the party's group of MPs who from week to week uh, can decide whether or not they have confidence um, in their current leader. Um, and if they no longer have confidence, that leader in the Australian parlance gets rolled. Um, I wouldn't like us to have uh, a system like that, um, which uh, I think 
uh, is not sufficiently stable. Um, then you think I ours is? I certainly wouldn't like us to have a presidential system in which the prime minister is directly elected. Um, and I, I hope explain my reasons for that, but we can go into them again if you well, want. Just, just on that point, Professor, there was a hybrid system, I think I'm right saying, in Israel at one point where the, the prime minister was separately directly elected. And I think in a couple of other European countries, as well as having a parliamentary system, it did exist. Yes, there are such hybrid systems. I don't know very much about them, but one uh, closer to home is France, where the president is indeed directly elected um, and is a very powerful political figure as a result. In almost all the other uh, parliamentary systems in Europe, the president is the head of state, uh, which is a formal role uh, and a ceremonial role, very similar um, to that in our system, which is performed by the queen. Um, but uh, I think you're right that our culture has become a bit more presidential with increasing focus by the media uh, on the role of the leader and the personality of the leader. Uh, but I wouldn't want that change in culture to lead to any further change in the rules. But, but isn't the problem there that one not reflecting the other makes for a distortion and people participating in the democracy are not kind of in sympathy with the culture that, that is there and the rules that already are there? And when, when a system is like that, it's kind of broken, isn't it? And can the rules themselves be, be broken? So if we have a, a prime minister, which I think we do now, who is who has almost take, led a presidential campaign, uh, with, a, with a number of promises which may or may not stand the test of time. For example, how much of what she's promised is, has actually had scrutiny from the Treasury, for example. She seems to have gone out on her own with, with all these presidential-style promises. And she will is then electing uh, a cabinet... Uh, of, she's choosing of, a cabinet. Of, yeah, so choosing a cabinet. Sorry, of, uh, and and that cabinet there has the has has some powers uh, to change uh, regulation, not legislation. But if you look at bills like the Brexit Freedoms Bill, for example, which is uh, announced in the Queen's speech, which is the the one that's there to change EU law, that's regulatory change by ministers, not by Parliament. So she's choosing who those ministers are are, are going to be. This prime minister that, you know, the minority of the population wanted uh, having such power seems to be distorting democracy, if, you know, if not downright killing it. I don't think our system is broken uh, and I don't think it helps uh, if people use that exaggerated language. <laughs> uh, this is, I think, the 15th occasion in the last 100 years since 1916, when Lloyd George became Prime Minister during the middle of the First World War, replacing Asquith. So it's perfectly common in a parliamentary system of government during uh, halfway through a parliamentary term for the Prime Minister, uh, the leader of the governing party, to change. Uh, that is a feature, a strong feature of parliamentary systems. And you say that Liz Truss made lots of promises which weren't tested, etc., when she was standing to be leader. Well, political parties and their leaders make lots of promises during election campaigns, which equally aren't tested until they get into government. Um, and that's a real test. And so if she has made reckless promises, 
which it now turns out she cannot fulfill, she and the Conservative Party will pay a political and electoral price. And in a parliamentary system, that is the main check and control. Right, but the, but the, we, those untested promises are made before a general election and uh, we can all decide whether those promises are realistic or not and we choose a party, not the, uh, the Prime Minister. Well, we choose based- individual MPs, technically. Yes, so collectively that creates a, a, a parliament uh, which is we've been sold the ideas of and uh, and we accept them or otherwise. Uh, so that that's a little bit different from where we are now, where those promises have changed midway between one election I, and the next. I don't understand uh, what you are proposing we should put uh, in the place of our parliamentary system of government. Uh, I have said, and let me say it again, uh, we have on 15 occasions since 1916, seen a mid-term change of prime minister. Now, uh, for most of the 20th century, the new prime minister was selected actually by a much smaller number of people. Take the three post-war changes uh, of Eden becoming prime minister in 1955, Macmillan in 1957, Douglas Hume in 1963, At that time, it wasn't even Tory party MPs who got to choose the new prime minister. It was a small cabal of party elders. The men in grey suits, famously. Indeed, which led Ian MacLeod to write a very angry article in The Spectator. And he said it was a cabal of old Etonians Mm -hmm. selecting another old Etonian um, in the case of Macmillan and Douglas Hume. And uh, I think it was a very good thing when subsequently the Tory party, it was in 1965, changed their rules to extend the selection to all Tory party MPs. As I've indicated, I think it's regrettable since that the franchise has been extended further to all party members, but I don't see any way in which that can now be rolled back. I think the the thing I'm having difficulty with is that we we elect a parliament and they've made promises. If they change course by changing their leader and their leader changes the agenda, then uh, they've, they've changed what we voted for. So, for example, how much of what was read out in the 2022 Queen's speech is, is still going to apply? I mean, shouldn't it all apply because we are changing but, but, the person and not the agenda? But that's not that's not. I mean, the, the way that our democracy works, we, we elect individuals. As our representatives, not our delegates, they make the decisions. That is, that is what we don't actually we don't actually elect policies. So I think I think you're wrong on that. I think that's you know that's the nature of the system. It may be. A, I mean, Professor, I know you don't think we should say it's broken, but if there is a break, it's in the sense that that's what we do. We elect a good person from our community to represent us in Parliament. We don't vote on policies technically. We don't vote on a manifesto technically. Maybe we should, but the point is that's not the way the system works. Well, we do in part vote on policies because, on the whole, people vote for party labels. Yes, strictly we're electing an individual MP, but uh, political science, again, is pretty firm uh, in terms of the empirical evidence that most people don't know that much about their individual MP, let alone that person's policies, and therefore they tend to vote either Conservative, Labour, Lib Dem, Scottish National, or whatever, Uh, in line with our own political sympathies. Um, And that's fine. We elect a parliament, and the parliament then decides who shall form the government. And 
my only uh, concern, I think, about the system uh, not working perfectly is in the lack of understanding of many uh, ordinary citizens in the basics of a parliamentary system. I mean, jumping back uh, to 2007, when Gordon Brown replaced Tony Blair, I remember more than one person saying to me at the time, but I never voted for Gordon Brown. And they fundamentally did not understand the basics of a parliamentary system of government, which is that first we elect a parliament, which we do every so often at a general election, and then the parliament decides who will form the government. Let, let, me, if I... have, let me just finish. And we can have midterm a government losing a confidence motion uh, and then a completely different government being formed. Hmm. Uh, and that, again, is perfectly legitimate. It's part of a parliamentary system of government. It happens a bit more often in Europe, where they have uh, proportional voting systems, and so the government doesn't so often enjoy a comfortable working majority. Mm. Right, let me, let's, let me, I would like to move it on to a, different, a slightly different area, but within the same topic, which is the House of Lords. And we talked about Parliament just now. You were talking about Parliament, not the House of Commons, but Parliament. And the House of Lords is part of Parliament. But increasingly, one of the problems of having someone like Boris Johnson or indeed Liz Truss in their position as they are, is that they are entitled to nominate people to the House of Lords. And we understand possibly Boris Johnson will be nominating quite a lot of people to the House of Lords in order to try and uh, to rebalance something they see as unbalanced in terms of, uh, of the majority in the House of Lords. But that in itself is another aspect of our constitution, another aspect of our arrangements that many people don't understand, precisely as you say, people are not necessarily aware of, but that is fundamentally undemocratic and yet seems incapable of reform. And, and all this, it seems to me, bespeaks the need for something more than just a whole set of individual rules, perhaps a constitution that recognises that. Would you agree? Uh, in part, uh, and in part not. Let me explain. Uh, the House of Lords has been reformed very significantly just over 20 years ago, in 1999, when all but 10% of the hereditary peers were removed. And that was a very important change because before then, the House of Lords uh, had sensed that it was illegitimate in any democratic sense, uh, and they pulled their punches. Since the removal of the hereditary peers, the House of Lords has become much more self-confident, assertive, and much more willing to defeat the government. Let me give you just one figure to illustrate that. In the 13 years of the Blair-Brown Labour governments from 1997 to 2010, they enjoyed comfortable majorities in the House of Commons, and they were defeated in the Commons only five times in 13 years. In the Lords, they were defeated over 500 times. And so there's uh, no doubt in my mind that the Lords has become a lot more assertive and effective since that major reform. But... Coming on to your question about how these people are appointed, I wouldn't defend for a moment the current system of appointment, where, in effect, the incumbent prime minister has untrammeled patronage. I would like to see the House of Lords Appointments Commission, which is the body which advises the prime minister, 
um, about possible appointments to the House of Lords being given much stronger powers because it does run uh, a check on the people who the Prime Minister proposes to appoint. Um, in the past, previous Prime Ministers have on the whole followed the advice of the Appointments Commission, but uh, I'm afraid to say that Boris Johnson, uh, typically with um, his lack of respect for most rules and conventions, is the first Prime Minister not to have followed their advice in relation to the appointment of a very major Tory party donor. Well, that's, be, that's because of another example of a shift towards I mean, another shift towards presidential politics, isn't it, with our, with our previous prime minister? So you're, so you're saying, I mean, the idea, obviously, of the House of Lords is that they are, they are experts. In, you know, the, that was the, the philosophy, that these are experts that can be called on to provide advice and to challenge. And what you're saying is really that, there's, that that should be determined almost by the, by the committee, by an advisory panel, uh, rather than uh, being at the, the whim of the, the prime minister. It still doesn't sound democratic. You know, no. you have a panel, you have surely any in any bicameral system, one of the chambers, both of the chambers need to have a democratic basis. Isn't that pretty fundamental, Professor? Well, uh, that is the proposition uh, that has been put in successive attempts, uh, first uh, under the Labour government, uh, and then under the coalition led by Nick Clegg to introduce an elected element in the House of Lords. And surprise, surprise, uh, those attempts never got past the House of Commons. Um, it's <laughs> often uh, not sufficiently understood that the greatest obstacle to introducing an elected element into the Lords is not the House of Lords itself, it's the House of Commons. They don't want a rival, basically. Indeed. Yeah, because the Australian system, I mean, I'm not saying Australia is the answer to everything, but I mean, two houses which work pretty well, I think, in terms both, of... Both elected. Both elected, and we get proportional representation in one of those houses, which uh, which satisfies, you know, you have, the, the, you have your geographically representative MP, and then on a state-by-state -state basis, you have proportional representation mm. for the Senate. That seems to work pretty well, uh, and you do get checks and balances, because people will tend to say, well, I quite like this government, but I've got to keep them honest, so I'm going to vote for these other guys, plus the fact that you have a greater diversity of parties as well uh, represented. So uh, I mean, a system like that seems to work. But yeah, your point is it's, um, it's not going to happen because it's not going to get past Parliament. It's not going to get past the House of Commons. Commons yeah, that, that, that's the greatest stumbling block. So is there an argument bringing all this together? Go back to my point about a constitution that if we actually got together instead of having a what seems to be a set of semi haphazard rules, whether it's within individual party organizations that free to organize themselves or uh, this slightly nudge and a wink system for nominating to the House of Lords. If you put a lot of money into the Tory coffers or indeed Labour coffers or indeed Lib Dem coffers, that gets you in there. Isn't, isn't that the point, perhaps, if, if taking your point that it isn't broken, that it still has some fractures that need fixing? Are you suggesting, uh, as many people are inclined to, uh, waving their arms and saying the system is broke, what we need is a written constitution, as if that were the answer to everything? Well, I don't think it's the answer to everything. I think it might be at least an answer to some of the problems. Yes. Um, the people who say we need a written constitution are very often people who've never read other countries written constitutions, and I think have very little idea what a constitution looks like. So let me, if I may, just read to you an extract from uh, another country very similar to ours 
in that it's a Western European monarchy, uh, which has a written constitution, and you'll see what I mean. So this is the constitution of Denmark, which was substantially revised in 1953. So it's a modern constitution. And what does it say? It sets out the formal rules for the things we've been talking about, in particular, how you appoint a prime minister. And it says, the king shall appoint and dismiss the prime minister and the other ministers. The legislative power shall be vested in the king and the parliament jointly. The executive power shall be vested in the king. The king shall act on behalf of the realm in international affairs, and so on. And formally, those are the rules in a parliamentary system of government with a monarch as the head of state. Right. So you're saying we're very similar to that without it being written in a constitution. If we wrote down our constitution... It would be the same. We would just change the word Denmark and put the UK in instead. Exactly. Yeah. It would be exactly the same. Right. But that raises raises the other question, doesn't it? Because um, we're running out of time. I mean, we could talk for hours about this. I mean, you spend your life talking about it, I'm sure. But the, um, you know, if we... The role of the royal family is largely ceremonial in this country, but it could become political. So we, we get King Charles, for example, who could be more political than the Queen. And that could have an impact on democracy. And then questions because are going to- we don't have already set rules, yeah, even like Denmark. Exactly. Actually, yeah. well, there are half a dozen uh, countries in Western Europe which are also monarchies: the Scandinavian countries, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, the Benelux countries, Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and Spain. And the reason why they've survived as monarchies is that the monarch has no political power. They have seen what little political power they had gradually seep away during the 19th and 20th centuries. And their monarchies are almost identical to ours in this fundamental respect, that the monarch is a ceremonial figurehead with no political power. Uh, And I don't expect that to change in any of those other countries, nor in the UK. And if Prince Charles, when he becomes king, seeks to be interventionist, I think the prime minister of the day, will very swiftly and firmly put him back in his box. As we reach the end of this discussion, Professor Hazel, let me ask you, I mean, you, the impression I have had is that overall you think the system, as it is, works reasonably well. Is there nothing that you would wish to change if, if it were in your power? Uh, if I could wave a magic wand, as I've said, uh, I would rather that when political parties choose their new leader, the vote was restricted to the MPs, of that political party rather than the membership at large. Uh, But I can't see, I'm afraid, that that happening. Um, The fundamentals, I think, of our parliamentary system of government uh, are still still sound. uh, And there are parliamentary systems of government around the world which are all suffering from populism, from nationalist leaders uh, who have uh, increasingly little respect for the conventions of democracy, for the rule of law, uh, other values, which are fundamental to underpinning any effective political system. But uh, those are all changes in political culture, which are not necessarily amenable to corresponding changes in the rules uh, in order to try and persuade people to obey 
the usual norms and conventions of political life. But the fact that they are able to run roughshod over those rules, I mean, they might be breaking the rules, but they're getting away with it. So, I mean, does that that makes the rules a bit worthless, doesn't it? And, and hence the question about do we need to look at a, a more wholesale reform? And I guess the, 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 the point about the Constitution, I take your point that, you know, are we just saying let's, let's look at the Constitution because, uh, because we don't like the way things are right now. But, I mean, it would be a way of fixing some of the things that you seem to be agreeing with. So, you know, when we talk about how we need to reform the, the, the House of Lords, you might not agree with the, the fact that it should be uh, representative of the uh, votes from the population, but that's one thing to look at. And this idea that, you know, the, the MPs should be the ones who choose if there's a change of leader in a party or, dare I say, you call automatically call for a general election, for example. All of those things could be discussed if you said, well, OK, we are going to change the constitution and we could look at whether the ceremonial role of the royal family has has less influence because it is largely ceremonial. If it's ceremonial, what's the point? I have not been uh, advocating any fundamental changes to the constitution. I do think there are small changes that could be made to try to improve politicians' political behavior. So I would like to see uh, a strengthening of the powers of the House of Lords Appointments Commission. I would like to see a strengthening of the powers of the Electoral Commission, or rather a removal of a recent change where uh, just in the last parliament, the law was changed so the government can now set what is called a uh, priorities and strategy statement for the Electoral Commission. In effect, the government can start giving directions to the Electoral Commission, which I think is a very regrettable change. The Electoral Commission is a really important uh, guardian of the fairness of our elections and its independence should be respected. Likewise, uh, I should like to see the independent advisor on ministers' interests, uh, the person with whom Boris Johnson clashed twice, leading to the resignation, first of Sir Alex Allen and more recently uh, Lord Guide. I would like to see that post given stronger powers. So there are several, I think, small changes that could and should be made, in particular with this group of organisations who we might call constitutional watchdogs, uh, to try to ensure better political behaviour on the part of our politicians and better observance of the norms and conventions, which are crucial uh, in any democratic system of government. Professor, thank you so much for being with us. Fascinating insights into what could change, um, perhaps what should change, but thank you very much for uh, an interesting view of the Constitution. Thank you, Bob. I tell you what, uh, there, there is a man who thinks if it's not broken, uh, it doesn't matter. So. Yeah, exactly. No, uh, that's right. I mean, you know, and, and there are lots of people who think, I mean, the fact is, you know, we, we may have many problems with our system, but we haven't had the kind of Italian-style absolute bloody chaos in terms of politics. Um, and we've managed, uh, we've modelled Along, I suppose, you know, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't mind so much if we had a, a prime minister that the majority of people didn't vote for, because that is normally the case anyway. We normally have a minority government, but having a prime minister that is was has been chosen originally by the minority of the party that she represents. 
I find there's something fundamentally wrong there with that. Is, she's, the, she's the prime minister that, you know, you can't uh, put your hand to your heart and say, this is what everyone within the Conservative Party right. wanted to but happen. But Robert, as Robert Hazel says, unless you actually regulate the parties, yeah, because the parties are the mechanism, it ain't going to change anything. Right. And it can't unless, you know, you have a presidential system. I mean, the problem is it's a, it's a hybrid system anyway. Yeah. It sort of works. If you change it, the trans, trans diet might not work at all. But he acknowledged that populism if seems she to be changing. Doesn't, if she, well, if she is a populist leader, which she clearly is, and the last one certainly was. Well, not a popular and, leader. No, not, not popular, but populist. I mean, which she's saying what she thinks is what people want to hear, which is curious, isn't it? Because yeah. it's clearly not working. Because uh, I don't think she's getting a great deal of support. Maybe she will. But the question is, is she going to do stuff to get that popular appeal, which is actually going to be damaging because for Because she'll for, need for to the for the election coming up in 2024. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. And, that, and that, so... Are we that's really the nature just of democracy. You have to appeal to the people. Well, there we are. You see, then you have to say, well, okay, is is de- I mean, do we have no other system other than democracy? I'm <laughs> Let's not going to advocate anything that's else. That's a good idea. Uh, but yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I just feel as though yeah. it, it, look, if, if if she stuffs up badly, yeah, uh, then there's going to be enormous mistrust in the system. Mistrust so, and I mean, trust. So there's uh, and but not just trust. This the whole system, and then you know we can say democracy is not broken. But if people don't have any trust in it, whatever the rules are, the system is broken. And people will stop voting because they'll start saying, what's the point? And I feel like we're right on the verge of that. No, I have my doubts. I think we'll just muddle along. I'm actually with Professor <laughs> Hazel. I think in the end, it basically will get through. Mm. Not well, but adequately. And maybe the change is, is not what we need. But that's, that's a very conservative outlook. Of it is. It's a very British way, isn't it? We'll just muddle through somehow. So next week, well, what is the alternative to all that we've been talking about? <laughs> well, uh, autocracy. We did mention oligarchy. I mean, there is an issue now that the world seems to be going back to bipolarism if that's not the right word saying there are two areas two big areas Russia and China I don't think bipolarism is the word but no it but isn't but it's a bipolar <laughs> world it's not a unipolar world which is what everyone said it was after yeah, yeah. the uh, end of the Cold War because we have a new Cold War we have autocracy China and Russia and then we have theoretically yeah. democracy in the West and it's becoming clearer and clearer that these are alternate systems that are working I mean, which well maybe they are maybe they're not the autocracies are saying we do work it's fine we're perfectly healthy we're doing very well mm. look at you crazy democracies falling apart yeah. uh, in total chaos economic meltdown the and world if, outside may take a lesson. Yeah, and look, if we if we had Russia and China and other parts of the world, uh, maybe developing nations that aren't uh, you know totally fixed on democracy, all teaming up together, challenging, for example, the, uh, the the U.S. dollars being the reserve currency, all the economic implications of all of that. How does the democracy of the West stack up? against these autocracies. This is going to be the subject. Geopolitics. Next week. With a capital G. Yes, on The Y Curve. Curve. Love the way we do that in unison. See you next week. The Y Curve.